And once again, I'll invite you to join together with me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we have come to this place, we have, through our worship, opened our hearts to you. In opening our hearts, Lord, it is with that spirit of confession. Confession, Lord, that recognizes who we are and what we have been and what we have done throughout the week and in the course of our lives. And, Lord, a confession that we... We need you. We need you even in this hour to help uh, iron out those wrinkles that, that have so easily fallen into our heart and our life and our soul. I pray that, Lord, you would awaken us to your presence, not only now, but, Lord, a presence that would lead us into the days to come. So that with a heart of conviction and that, Lord, with a a strength of purpose, we might be able to serve you, that we might be able to know you, that we might be able to love you, and that, Lord, the fellowship we have with you might become even more and more dear. This we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, I invite you to return to me with a study that we began actually at the beginning of the year in the 90 days of prayer. It was the study in the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may have thought that uh, when we were finished with 90 days of prayer that that was it, but you're wrong. We aren't done until I say we're done. And when it comes to prayer as believers, we are really actually enrolled in a lifelong course of instruction. That really does never end. And, and, and we do it joining together with the disciples who, oh, two, two millennial ago, turned to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And his response to their request uh, came in in Matthew chapter 6 when he looked at them and he said, well, pray then in this way. And he initiated this lifelong school of prayer. Pray then this way. And with that, he gave a wonderful gift. He gave the Lord's Prayer. As you may remember in our study through the wintertime, Jesus doesn't give just words saying pray this prayer or pray these words, but instead he says pray this way. And with that he gives an outline of thought that guides us and as each time we pray we fill each word with meaning. And and each time we pray we find ourselves on a way of prayer that first acknowledges God as Heavenly Father and then embraces his concerns as of primary importance, not just to him, but to us as well. And then, having done that, frees us then to turn to him with our most critical needs. Now, I know this is a bit of a review, but it is helpful to remember that there is an outline of thought here in the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is, is wrapped around six primary requests, beginning with the three petitions, that God's name be hallowed that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, and that once all of that has been established, that then we are freed then to lay out our own personal petitions, a petition for daily bread, a petition for forgiveness, and a petition for protection. Now, that is an important thing to know because several weeks ago we looked at our second prayer request there in the Lord's Prayer, and it was a matter of forgiveness. You may remember that service that we shared together in the Fellowship Hall, where we read Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or 
Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And at that point, having taught his disciples how to deal with the past and knowing that God does, in fact, definitively deal with our past with forgiveness, then Jesus frees us to turn our attention into the future and addresses our vulnerability then for what we will face today in this moment and then the days to come. A danger to sin beyond yesterday into today and out into tomorrow. And so I want you to turn there with with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, where we begin by reading these words, the third prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The thing that we need to know is how to pray for spiritual protection. The Bible is very clear that the life we live is an encounter of a daily battle with a very powerful enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are warned that our struggle, our daily struggle, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And with a warning like that, we, we realize that we need to be really prepared, equipped, and according to Jesus, become, as it were, experts in the martial arts of prayer. I kind of like that, you know, the hands, the martial arts. And we see that in this prayer, especially as it appears in Matthew chapter 6. It, it, it does stand really as just one prayer request, even though it appears like two, because this is really a Hebrew literary, literary device that is called parallelism. It's a, a technique that links two statements together as one, so that the first provides the foundation of thought for the second, and the second illuminates the significance of the first. So what we have here may appear to be two requests, but they are welded into really one strategy for a battle, a defensive part or a negative part of the prayer where we say, lead us not into temptation, and then an offensive strategy uh, uh, or a positive part of the prayer, deliver us from evil, or better translated, deliver us from the evil one. And that's a critical point for us to be able to understand the prayer as this Hebrew literary device is designed in such a way that the second statement illuminates the significance of the first, and you simply cannot pray about temptation without the awful and hideous and frightening presence of what appears at the end of the second part, and that is the presence of the evil one who hangs over the entire prayer. It's it's an incredible picture. It's not just of evil as some sort of impersonal hazard that that we might bump into in the course of of a day, like an infection or a virus that you're not quite sure where you got it from, but but you know you're going to encounter it, and it will make you sick for a season. I'm in my third week. I'll get over it. I know. It's not just evil impersonally. This is the evil one who overhangs our day, otherwise known as Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the tempter, who, as the Apostle Peter describes, is a horrific personality. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's your enemy, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. He's out to take a bite out of you. Now, please, this is an important part 
uh, point to make this morning because I'm going to break this prayer into two parts. But in dealing with the first temptation, you need to make it as serious as Jesus does by keeping your eyes open to the fact that temptation is connected to the evil one. You see, it's my suspicion that for many, dealing with temptation may be serious, but not that serious. It's, it's almost like we're dealing with some sort of personal weakness that, that we can remedy on our own, maybe learn new strategies or be able to manage our addictions or better discipline to control our impulses. But it, it's really not that big of a deal. I've just got to get my impulses under control. And if I fail, no, that's no big deal. In fact, we may giggle about it. I've, 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 I've seen a card in the card section uh, where it says, lead me not into temptation. I can find it all by myself. <laughs> we can giggle at that thought. But when I first took a look at this verse, I'll admit, I was tempted to craft a self-help, how-to sort of sermon on how to recognize temptation and then offer helpful steps on how to deal with it in your own life with greater efficiency. But then I suddenly realized that you, you already can find a thousand books that offer slicker strategies than I could ever possibly list, but none that actually do what Jesus does in clarifying the issue overarching it all, no matter what strategy it is that you might look at to find, overarching it all, we are being faced by a fearsome enemy, and we dare not deal with him alone, but make every attempt to live in complete and utter dependence upon God, day by day, step by step. And so we read that our daily, moment by moment prayer comes down to this, Lead us not, Heavenly Father, into temptation. And at first, I I found this actually then to be a a bit of a shock. After all, nothing could be further from the realm of possibility than that God would, in fact, possibly entice someone into sin. Lead us not into temptation? Is it possible? After all, we we just read in James chapter 1, verse 3, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The reason for for this is, is complicated because of the Greek text. The Greek, the word that is found here is the word paratil, and it can refer either to a direct temptation to do evil, or it can also refer to a trial that reveals character, a testing. That's the word. We have three English words for the one. Temptation, trial, testing. In Greek, it's all the same words, so we need to understand the context here. For example, James uses the word paratil in two different ways in just a span of a few verses. If you have your fingers in Matthew chapter 6, turn over to James chapter 1 and you'll see it used in two different ways. In James 1 verses 2 and 3, we read, count it all joy, count it all joy when you experience various trials and the word is there. And it's the same that we have here as temptation or trial that Jesus uses. And it, it is seen as a good thing here at the very beginning, a reason for joy, a joyful thing. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces something wonderful, and in this case, patience. 
And then this testing or temptation starts a whole cascade of good things. The testing of your faith produces patience, and this patience or perseverance produces a work in you of maturity and completeness. You see that there. And here James refers to tests that God originates or permits like the tests that came to the saints throughout the Bible, the tests that came to Abraham or to Job or any other number of saints who were put to a test even as severe as the testing that comes through persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. And James says that in and through these experiences, God strengthens mature faith. And we are told to rejoice in that then, the opportunity for testing. But just ten verses later, James uses the same word again, paratil, to speak of another kind of testing. This is in James chapter 1, verse 13, the verse I just quoted. Let no one say when he is tempted or he, she is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, and he does not tempt anyone. And James adds, every, but every person is tempted when drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And this is the bad part of temptation. And testing. It comes to that moment whenever we have that impulse inside then to blame God, not just for our sin, but for having set us up for our sin. As if we were never to blame for our weaknesses, especially if it gives us a convenient excuse to surrender. In the Greek text, of this prayer, the special stress is laid on one particular word in, in that prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and it's the word into. Lead us not in, uh, into temptation, into. It's the Greek translation of a word in the Hebrew, lithe, which literally means to be put into the hands of. Image there, the illustration is of being delivered over to a captor. It's the transfer of custody from one authority to another. And I suppose the logical consequences that James explains is the sort of personal surrender where we may succumb ourselves into thinking, well, God allowed this to happen. He led me into this in order to abandon me so that I have no other choice but to give up and give in. It's his fault. I'm just a hapless victim. I surrender. But God does not do that. And with this prayer, Jesus makes this a constant reminder. God does not lead you to be captured by temptation. And every time you pray this prayer, it is a reminder, Heavenly Father, lead me not into any testing where I will be left alone to be taken captive. How's that for a translation for that prayer? In the filling of it with meaning. And so the expanded version of this petition is something like this. I know that temptation must come, for there can be no life without a free will, without temptation. But when it comes, do not abandon me to it. Do not deliver me into the helpless power of that other authority which belongs to the evil one. This is very similar to the prayer that Jesus had for his disciples. He prayed in John chapter 17. I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. This is not the sort of impossible request that any one of us can, can pray 
expecting to be exempted from testing or temptation, as if to say, lead me not into temptation so that I can actually live the rest of my life carefree, and I don't have to worry about the sort of things that get other people into trouble. No, it's, it's a prayer of realism that we not be abandoned, helpless, and unarmed to the attack and the power of the one out seeking to devour us. And the implication is here that the devil is too strong for us alone and that we are too weak to stand up to him, but that our Heavenly Father will never intend to leave us without shelter, but will deliver us should we call on him. And so our Lord said, pray this, Heavenly Father, lead us not into temptation. And it's a prayer that he will answer. Our Lord is faithful, protect us. In a few moments, as the Lord's table is set up before us this morning, we are assured of this. His faithfulness is shown by what the bread and the cup on the table represents. His body which was broken for us. His blood that was poured out for us. So as we prepare for the table, let me try to tie together a few critical lessons. First, the fact is we face temptation. It comes to us from many places and in many forms sometimes personally related, unusual to anybody else, but you know it to be true for yourself. But do not be fooled. There is nothing casual about it in whatever shape or size it comes, which means that we are called to live lives of discernment, careful discernment. Temptation, trial, testing, like I said, they're all the same, no matter what word we choose to use, and they come. Probably more often in the smallest ways. Oh, that little donut that you see. But when they do, and when they do arrive, we have to make a decision to choose for God or against God. It becomes a cosmic choice. And there we exercise something that God has allowed us to have and has graced us with. Of all the creatures in the world, only us, humans, have the freedom to make such decisions. As I open my study this for this sermon this week on Monday, it was with a very, very heavy heart. Throughout last weekend, my wife and I had been praying for someone named Father Tom Ushnalil. He's a, a Catholic priest in Yemen. He had served in the old people's home in Aden, which was operated by Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity, when the forces of ISIS attacked, killing 15 of the nuns and other workers, and then kidnapping him, Father Tom. Earlier in the week, into the Holy Week last week, ISIS announced that they were going to celebrate Good Friday by crucifying Father Tom. And so a call went out worldwide for serious concentrated prayer and went around the world. In light of the sheer magnitude of persecution being brought against God's people worldwide each and every day, my wife held Tom in prayer that even as he had been taken captive by the evil one, he would not be abandoned into their hands but that God would be with him. And on Monday, I was saddened to read a press release in the Australian news service, although I did read something yesterday that contradicted it, but in the Australian press release that his death came as an act of senseless and diabolical violence. That same release could have been added to the news of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of believers being martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ each and every year. 
And what they face is the most extreme form of this term that we have down here, trial. More extreme than we could ever imagine, where, where choices need to be made. Is God my heavenly Father or not? Now, I don't want to incite within us uh, a level of paranoia this morning that would cause you to begin to shiver and shake when you walk into Tim Hortons and see Tim bits. I, I, I don't want to cause that. But the terms are still the same, trial and temptation. And while we may not encounter the horror of such an extreme choice in oh-so-gentle Canada, the fact is we are surrounded by our own temptations, and we dare not dabble with any of them as pretty little playthings. But see beyond them and behind them the challenge of one who is evil in essence. And thus we must live in this prayer Heavenly Father, do not abandon me to temptation. Which brings a second critical lesson, that our lives are intended to be best lived in complete and utter dependence upon him, something that is cultivated moment by moment and day by day and becomes stronger and stronger as time goes on. Our maturity in faith is not intended to make us more independent in our lives, but instead is intended to draw us deeper into communion with him so we might never find ourselves alone in the face of the enemy as naked prey. Oh, we may face temptations in so many varieties, but as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to people, but God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength, but with every temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Which leads then to the third critical lesson. And this is where we are intended to grow into a measure of a mature disciple and that be our testimony for the world to see. Having made it our business to live in this prayer, Lord, preserve me from temptation that will bring me under its sway and cause me to fall. Having lived in this prayer, it is no surprise then to find that a mature disciple is defined, as we read in in Ephesians chapter 4, one who is strong in the knowledge of the Son of God, of, of the Son and God, matures, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Some time ago, and I'm sure I've used this illustration before, I know it's a favorite one to me, but I was given a copy of a note found that was written in the blood-stained Bible of a young pastor in Zimbabwe, Africa, following his martyrdom for his faith after they were attacked again by the forces of evil and protected his congregation as they escaped, he died. And in his Bible, this blood-stained Bible, there found this little card and it said, my commitment to Jesus Christ. And this is what it said, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living and sight walking and small planning and smooth knees and colorless dreams and tamed visions and worldly talking and cheap giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence and prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, rewarded, or regarded. I now live by faith, 
and lean on His presence. I walk by patience and I'm uplifted by prayer and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, and my way is rough. My companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away from, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, ponder in the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he comes, gill until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner has been made clear. Now that's a disciple. I'm going to invite you to prepare with me for the Lord's table. And in the words of the pastor, do this preparation by being all prayed up. Knowing that the broken bread and the poured cup represent a Lord who has loved us and has faced temptation to its max and through it has then given himself for us. He knows the full dimensions of the temptations and trials and testings but also through his powerful, resurrected presence, he is here to take us in hand, a hand that will never, ever let you go. So join with me together as we pray it up together, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. It's in your bulletin. It's on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.